fact, somebody raise that, that up in prayer before we get started here. Connie's here, so we have a prayer warrior. Heavenly Father, we just, it's Cheryl's turn. We love Cheryl's turn for the health. We thank you that you for this long. And I praise you that Cheryl is well enough. Well, okay. Okay, so Heavenly Father, we pray that you will strengthen both of you. Being kind of sandwiched in the middle of this whole thing. That um, if he has to go, he's concerned about Cheryl at home. But Father, he also knows that that Cheryl's under your, as are her. And so Father, we want to lift family and Father for strength, for wholeness, um, for healing. Um, we would love to see her. We know that as you have them in this situation and they are ministering to the medical, I pray that you give them the strength of light, like a lighthouse that would just shine out for, to everyone um, that would be fabulous. And Lord, that you would watch over for us <clears throat> in his travels and Joe gets to travel. Um, her as well. So we give the doctors wisdom um, both states as to how to deal with this Amen. Well, back to Romans this morning, and we are in the last little portion of it, and I'm going to try to get through five verses, as I mentioned in the email. <coughs> Connie is a little skeptical, but uh, we'll see how we do. And I think the reason we can is Paul is essentially going over some of the same concepts, the same principles that we've already looked at, adding a different twist to it. He's, you might even say, exposing or revealing to us kind of the purpose of everything that he's been talking about. And he's looking at the end product of the principle of being identified or in union with Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of chapter 6, which is the key to living the Christian life. We've developed that in some detail. And I think we can get through all of them because we've already defined most of the terms. Some of them I'll remind you so we can go a little bit more rapidly and bring it to a little bit of a conclusion, at least chapter 6. So, 19 through 23. Last time, let me give you a little review. We looked at the concept of slavery. Not that we're not familiar with it, but not as familiar as first century people in general. The culture was basically a slave culture, agricultural. In fact, millions of slaves throughout the Roman Empire. There were probably more slaves than there were free people. Book of Acts, Paul makes a point that he's a Roman citizen, which was rare and difficult to acquire, and he acquired it by birth. Most people are born into a slave-master relationship. So the concept is not as familiar to us as it would have been in the first century, but yet because of our history, we have a little bit of background in that. But our background is a little distorted in terms of the first century condition, and we have very negative connotations to it. So in Rome, there were slaves, and that's the reason that Paul uses this analogy that we'll get into in a moment. So we're in this major section, 6 through 8, on sanctification. That's the word that Paul will use. And finally, we'll get to that word, but he's been talking about sanctification beginning, actually, a transition even in chapter 5, but certainly beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. So it'll run through 8, 
chapter 6 primarily focuses on the principles. So we've been looking, I've developed at least nine individual principles surrounding the major principle of baptism into Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. So we had to spend some time talking about baptism because we've got a distorted view on it as well. We don't have the biblical concept. Well, maybe we do now, but we've spent some time on it. So the principles in chapter 6, this identification with Christ or this union, you could use that word as well, the joining of you and I to Jesus Christ once we entered into a personal relationship. He's just completed the section on justification, another theological word. Justification unites us, or you might say baptizes us, into Christ. So we saw first 14 verses, that's the central concept there. And now he's moving to the sanctification, the believer's sanctification, 15 through 23. We looked at the first part of that. He raises the issue again, verse 15, similar to verses 1 and 2, raising an issue there. And he explains this new slavery, and that's why we developed that concept, because that's the imagery that Paul is using, 16 through 18, and that's where we left off last time, and now 19 through 23, this resulting sanctification, the result of this identification, the result of this, what he describes as slavery, or I describe as a new slavery. So he starts off verse 19 and 20 with contrasting presentations. And I'll remind you of the word that he uses here, the word to present. It's the same one that we saw in verse 13, and we defined it there, so I'll remind you of that. But the beginning of verse 19, and this is where we ended last time, I'm speaking in human terms. The word human is the common, or it's related to the common word in Greek for man. In other words, human or in relationship to mankind. Using, I think, an analogy or an illustration, you might describe it, that was common in the first century. Everyone understood the concept, and now he's using that to make his point that is not so easily understood, a spiritual concept. And the reason he's doing this is because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, most believers just think in terms of natural things, and it's hard sometimes to grasp spiritual truth. I don't think he's necessarily degrading them. I think he's just recognizing just the nature of who we are. The fact that in the flesh, unless we go beyond that and think in terms of spiritual truth and spiritual reality... Our natural inclination is to stay in that weakness of flesh that is incapable. Now, it's kind of a hint here. We are incapable, apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, incapable of understanding and even sometimes recognizing things beyond the material human level. So he's just reminding us, and I think in this context, he's reminding us of what he has just done because it's after the verses that we've already looked at. So last time we developed this slave imagery. In fact, we started looking at it even before. And we even saw that it begins in verse 14 when he, he switches words. 
He used a word earlier in terms of dominance or concept of mastery, and he uses the word that's related to kurios, except he's using the word form to be a master. Sin is not to be a master like was common in the first century, master over you, to lord something over someone. It's related to the common word for Lord, which is a common description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Him being sovereign, you might say, over us. But in that culture, there were lords in the human sense as well. You could translate it master. So he begins in verse 14 to transition, and then he uses the word slave. How many times did we count? Five times, I think. Five times for the noun. It's the common word doulos. But he also uses the verb form two times in this context. And it's the most abject description of a slave. There are several words that are used, and this is the lowest of all of them. It describes someone that's bound in service to another, a basic understanding. Also, he uses the word obedience. We looked at that last Mm -hmm. time. This is the main function of a slave. So in this context, he's developing this imagery. It continues throughout it. And that's our relationship to our new master, our new Lord, you might say. So he's developing these concepts so we will understand that relationship. And we made some points that we'll get to in a moment here. Fourthly, he uses the term freed, which is different from the translation of a word that we saw earlier. It's also translated free, but this is a different word. This is more commonly the word that is used in terms of a freeing of a slave in the everyday sense. To make free, to set free from bondage. And he, in verse 19, is referring, I think, to all of the imagery that we developed as an analogy or human terms is the way the text is translated, or he's using imagery. That's why we developed it and try to bring out those features. So we are in a new relationship. We never get out of slavery, is the point of Romans 6. We are born in slavery, slavery to sin and death. That's the concept throughout, even before chapter 6, particularly chapter 5 where he transitions. So... There is no such thing as true freedom for the unbeliever. He is bound and cannot escape slavery. That's our condition. That's our nature. The only escape is Jesus Christ. But even that, it transitions us into a new slavery, which is good. We have negative connotations, but in a biblical sense, It is good to be under a protector, a benevolent master, one that has our best interest in mind, one that provides for us, one that supplies everything that we need, one that we can willingly serve and, in fact, a privilege to serve. That's a positive. So we enter into this new slavery, and that's the concept that he's trying to communicate here using this analogy. So when we talk about slavery, it's one bound in service to another. 
So everyone, believer or unbeliever, is bound in some way. The, the unbeliever is bound to sin and ultimately to death. The unbeliever seeks maximum freedom. He wants to stay away from the law. He wants to stay away from the things of God because he thinks that is enslaving. He thinks that is restricting. So he seeks maximum freedom. And in that search, all he does is bind himself even more to sin. The passage is going to bring out that concept as well. And you can see it in the culture. You can see it in individuals. And certainly every believer shows those characteristics. So the unbeliever in verse 12 is a slave to sinful desires. Spent a lot of time developing that concept. He's only free from the Creator and the Savior. That's the only freedom he has. So we're dealing with a kind of a paradoxical, you might say, concept, slavery and freedom. The unbeliever is only free from Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Christ as Savior. And he's only free, verse 20 makes the point that we'll get to, free from righteousness. And that's the stress of many of the passages all the way in chapter 1, in that we have no righteousness. So in a sense, we're free from it. We're free from the ability to be able to do anything lasting, anything eternal, anything pleasing to God. All of our righteousness, we've been stressing, like Isaiah says, are as filthy rags. So verse 20, the unbeliever is free from righteousness. The believer, and here's the paradox, is set free from sin. That's stressed, verse 6, verse 7, verse 11, and other passages, but particularly those. And now we are free not to do whatever we want to, but we're free not to sin to begin with. Verse 14 stresses that concept. And also, now we are free to serve a new master. Before we served and we were bound, and we can't serve two masters, Jesus says. So the only master that we could serve was sin, ultimately ending in death. But now we have the freedom, we saw that in 17 and 18, free to serve a new master. And we are most free, that's the paradox, when we are most a slave to Jesus Christ, a slave to God himself. That is when we have the maximum freedom, and that is the only freedom that is genuine and real. Make sense? So that's where we ended last time. So in verse 19, he's going to review some things, and then he's going to kind of take it one step further. For just as you presented your members as slaves. And let me just remind you, we defined that Greek word. I gave you the results of a word study. If you do a word study, you're going to see different categories. It's used in an everyday sense of basically going alongside of or being with someone, being in their presence, that results in further lawlessness. There's the word paristemi, to stand by or near someone. And we won't look these up because we've already looked them up. But basically, this everyday sense, husbands and wives standing together, the word could be used there, disciples standing with their discipler, 
believers walking together, being together. So it's used in that everyday sense. It could be used, and we have imagery in Romans 12.1, present yourself as what? A living sacrifice. So when people in the Old Testament brought a lamb to the temple, gave it, they would present it to the priest as a substitute for their sin, that animal would be presented, and then the priest would slaughter the animal. It would be a sacrifice in place of the the believer, the, uh, the Jewish believer. But the presentation of that animal, paristomy, would be used. So in Romans 12, the word is used. We, in a similar way, in a spiritual sense, we put ourselves or we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. In other words, we're making ourselves available. In the imagery that Paul is developing, we said it would be like a slave that gets up in the morning, prepares himself, gathers all his tools, gathers everything that he's going to need for that day, and goes to the master and says, I'm available for you in serving you as master. That's the idea of the word to present. So when Paul uses it in this context, in this slave relationship, I think that imagery in a spiritual sense, day by day, that's why you have a quiet time, to basically present yourself. Lord, I want to do your will today. I want I don't want to be a rebellious slave and go about doing what I want to do or laziness and sleeping under a tree. I want to present myself to your service. That's part of me. So in this context, it has the idea of to offer oneself or to present oneself as an obedient servant or slave. And there's lots of usages, and it would include the usage right here. So... Just as you did present your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, that was the past, now we have an alternative that resulted in further lawlessness, resulting in lawlessness. And if you studied it in some detail, impurity probably is all-encompassing in terms of all of the internal sin that We are capable of displaying, and that was what we were locked into as unbelievers. So it includes our motives, it includes our thought life, it includes inward sin that is part of who we are. And then he uses the word lawlessness to go outside. In other words, the breaking of laws of culture or relationships, things that have an impact on everyone else. So he's basically looking at the totality because that's what we were locked into. So just as you presented past tense, that was our lifestyle. That was who we were. That was our identity. Now in the passages we've been looking at, he's presented us or given us a new identity. And this new identity includes this aspect of a master-slave relationship. So you presented your members or... Basically, your physical makeup that includes your mind, includes your heart, includes your emotions, all aspects of who we were. Our past is slaves to impurity. We're locked in. Cannot serve two masters. That's past, however. 
purity and lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, further damaging effects. So now, so there's been a change, there's been a transition, there's been a move from one state to another, from one slavery to a different slavery. So now, same word, paristemi, present your members again, our same physical makeup, our same body, present your members as slaves to righteousness now. That's the new slavery. In other words, he's moving from the condition to what it produces. And he begins with the presentation or making yourself available. Just as we didn't even think about it, we got up in the morning and just did what we wanted to do. We just thought in terms of, okay, what am I going to do today? We go off and do it without any thought in terms of anything spiritual. That's the natural man. David, you have a comment there? Iniquity unto iniquity, which means it's progressive. Yep. Yep. Progressive wickedness. It just gets worse. Yeah, depravity always degrades. Yep. And the other the option, the alternative to that is righteousness resulting in sanctification, which is also progressive. Progressive. Yep. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Very good. In fact, we're going to talk about that progressive aspect. So now we have another option, new possibilities, new ways of living, but it's going to take presentation. Now he's developing, in fact, he's repeating what he said in verse 13. He's already developed this, but now the stress is is not just the presentation. It's, it's in the imperative again. And by the way, this is the only imperative in this portion. Remember, all of the imperatives are clustered in verses, what was it? 11 through 14. 11 through 14. And in verse 13, he is reiterating right here the same imperative. But the stress is now what it results in. If we are slaves of righteousness, it's going to result in uh, sanctification. So paristeme, again, it's the same word, same word study. But now in this context, we are reporting as a servant for duty. And in this case, duty to do good things. Available to the master to do things that are in right standing with him. Things that are eternal. So it's not just being a believer, but it's actually in service of the master. And there's really no in-between. Now, certainly we spend time growing to a point of realization of that. A new believer comes into a consciousness of that more and more, and we become more and more involved in what God has us day by day. But it's just simply obeying him and following his directions. And when that happens, it has results And the stress here, it has personal results as well. And that's the thrust of this whole section, sanctification. So it's presenting ourselves like a servant reporting for duty, repeating 6.13, also in the aorist. And I've stressed an aorist imperative in the Greek. It loses that time element, and what it stresses is more the, the definite, of it. There are present imperatives, but an aorist imperative is the stronger of the two. In fact, it's the strongest way to frame a commandment or a imperative. So the, that's the stress here. So it's a definiteness to it, a it's a word strong imperative. 
It just basically repeats what we saw in verse 13. Resulting in sanctification. Now we started this whole study. In fact, this is our 16th study in chapter 6. I don't know if you've been counting. <laughs> I keep track. <laughs> Virtually everything. <laughs> right, Linda? <laughs> so 16th in chapter 6 alone. And I think in the third one there, we talked about sanctification. Let me quickly review. What's In fact, why don't you kind of review it for me? What is the idea of sanctification? Salvation. Connie's got it? No, not salvation. Although that's part of the sanctifying. To be set apart, don't leave off the last part, for a particular or special purpose. Remember I used the analogy, a lot of you women have dishes that you only use during holidays or Thanksgiving. Now you probably break them out for Easter and that sort of thing, or birthdays, special occasion. And all you men have in a garage. I said a sign already. That you only use on special occasion. Uh, nice looking car there. But you use your everyday car to go to work and to do things that you need to do, and you save this one for just special occasions. <laughs> All right. And remember, I developed the idea of this entire word group. The entire word group has this idea of something set apart for a particular and, in some cases, special purpose. It's a very common word throughout both Old Testament. So there's an Old Testament equivalent. Let me just remind you, and there's the New Testament equivalents as well. The Old Testament, kadash, it's the verbal form. It's to set something apart. And in Israel, God set many things apart, starting with the people themselves. They were a different people set apart from the rest of the nations. He called them out, set them apart. And in order to emphasize the idea of this setting apart, he called upon them to eat different things. He called upon them to do different things. They were to act differently. They were to be a distinct and separate people. So the idea in the Greek, hagias, something set apart, or oftentimes translated holy. That's the concept of holiness, or the idea of holy. And most of the time, it's translated holy. It's the same word group, however. Anything that is holy is something that is set apart from that that is common, that that is everyday. So that's the idea of holiness. And there are, we looked at several usages. It could be translated sacred, or it can refer to a holy one. So in the New Testament, when it translates saints... Same word, yes. Same word. In other words, a saint is someone that is set apart for a particular purpose. And then we have the verb form, hagiazo, to make holy or to declare something holy or to make something set apart, something put apart, or sometimes it translates to sanctify, to set something apart for special use. Same word group, same idea, now just the, the verb form. And then we have another noun form, hagiasmas, something that is in a state of being set apart or in the process 
And this word is translated holiness in the King James or sanctification in the New American Standard. Remember all that? So that's the concept. So he's dealing with sanctification here in this whole passage. And now he's showing that this new relationship, this new unity, this new identity, God is working in us to progressively set us apart. And it's a growth process. Sanctification, we've used the everyday idea of the Christian life. Christian life is to grow more and more separate, you might say, more and more Christ-like. And when we were defining it, I used this little chart. We have physical birth, coming to the world as a baby, as an infant. And we may live 60, 70, some of us 98, like me, years. Then we have physical death, okay? And we begin spiritually dead. We are born spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. As a result of that deadness, we stand condemned because we follow through on that deadness, and we bring about the wages. Wages of sin is death, condemnation. And somewhere along the line, those of you here at least, maybe maybe a small minority, we have a spiritual birth, as Jesus describes in John chapter 3 using an analogy for Nicodemus, the idea of a rebirth or regeneration, the giving of life. Because we are born spiritually dead, we need a rebirth. And that starts a process. In fact, all of this is a process of God setting us apart, even this initial stage. He describes it in Romans as justification, chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 3. Beginning in chapter 6, he's talking about sanctification, where we are set apart, where God is now developing in us righteousness. Justification, he declares us righteous. He forgives sin and declares us righteous, such that we have a totally new relationship now. We have a new identity. And now we grow in that new identity That's sanctification, the theological word. And it can take a circuitous route. Sanctification. There's ups and downs. There's growth. And we may regress in some cases. Some people have a smoother ride up. Others have a more up and down. But it's not something that happens overnight. Progresses. Until we die, basically, and then the process is completed. We call that glorification. And I use that word because that's the word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. But if you look at the process, even beginning with spiritual birth, and you can find passages that include the whole process as a sanctifying process. Okay, I'll get to that in a chart after this one. So God loves sinners. Remember I showed you this Slide, God loves sinners just as we are. That's Romans 1, beginning in verse 18 through 3, verse 20. God loves sinners just as we are. We are depraved, we're sinful. That's justification. That begins the, well, I shouldn't say begin, but it sets in motion, you might say, a setting apart for himself. The salvation or justification experience. That's the Romans 1 through middle of 3. 
But God refuses to leave us just, just as we are. Justification declares us righteous. Doesn't make us righteous. Sanctification is this process of God setting us apart so that we might change where he's beginning to build righteousness within us. And that involves a process of changing us into his image. We've used the Romans 12, 1 and 2 to be useful for his purposes. And that's what Romans 6 is talking about. Available as a servant of a new master in order to accomplish eternal and lasting results. God will complete that process. And Romans 8, 28 through 30 emphasizes this. We looked all these up a long time ago. I'm just reminding you. God will complete the process of sanctification. Paul describes that as glorification, and that is set apart for eternity. Once and for all, never to go in that cycle of ups and downs because sin will be totally removed. We can put it on a chart. We have spiritual births. For that, we are condemned. You can describe sanctification, the spiritual birth, as a positional sanctification where God sets us apart in a positional status, you might say. And there's an ultimate sanctification. Paul calls that glorification. <coughs> and in between, as David is pointing out, is what? Experiential, or David used progressive. Progressive sanctification. Where we begin to become more and more Christ-like, we experience more and more Christ-likeness. We experience more and more righteousness. So now you can put yourself <laughs> in the photo, photo here. And Paul is talking about sanctification or glorification. He will be saved, right? Yes, yes. He uses the word salvation in these three senses yes, as well. Exactly. Yes. And so um, you do mean that you're not really Yes, right? yes. So, in fact, one of the key words that you're alluding, or passage that you're alluding to is that Philippians 2 passage where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you're thinking, well, I thought salvation was by grace and grace alone, by, or by faith, by grace through faith. What is this working out? That's one of the passages that Marcy's referring to. That's that progressive idea. So he work, uses a lot of these same words interchangeably. The fact that he uses that particular phrase, fear and trembling, and also in Romans 12, 1, where he says, presenting your bodies, loving sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, by the way. Yeah, that's what it says. reasonable. You should do this. That's right. Living sacrifice. Yeah, because that's what a... That's reasonable. That's what a servant does. (laughs) That's the identity of a servant. To me, that that, it tells me that I can't do it myself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Never. Yeah. And even the working out of your salvation, verse 13 says, for it is he who both wills and does. So it's a faith relationship. And that's what Romans 6 is also talking about. And verse 20 just reminds us here, for when you were slaves of sin, that's that past condition, you were free, remember I mentioned that earlier, you were free in regard to righteousness. You had no relationship to 
or no capacity even to do anything that had eternal or spiritual value. So if you want to think in terms of freedom in this context, we're free from righteousness. And I kind of expanded it. We're also free from the Creator and we're free from the Savior. The unbeliever cannot accomplish anything eternal or spiritual because we're dead. So that's verse 20. Okay. 21 through 23, we have the contrasting results of what God has done and the results of walking by faith and appropriating and presenting your members. So 21, therefore, what benefit, and just kind of a simple question, and you know the answer, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? He's alluding back to verse 19, inward iniquity. What benefit was that bringing to you? It's destroying you. Lawlessness. What benefit were you benefiting from uh, sin against uh, the culture and one another? What did you derive from it? Nancy. I think one could answer that question by saying, I was deriving power. I was deriving control. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful to say, but I was deriving wealth. Fame. Yeah, whatever. Popularity. Benefits that seem good at the time. Right. But they have no eternal. Exactly. Good point. And what was the outcome of that? For the outcome of these things is death. What is the context here? Well, no, the textual context. Uh, you're right in terms of what he's talking about in terms of death, but what's the context of death in this location? Yeah, total comprehensive death that we've defined. And let me re- remind you of what we've defined here. It's not a second death. It's not the death that we have at the end of the book of Revelation. It is present. It's relating to here and now. It's relating to sanctification. The context is sanctification. So it's in a sanctification context, death in that comprehensive separation idea. Death is separation. Physical death is separation from the body. And I'm going to show you another slide here. Separation in all of these areas. Remember, we went back to Genesis 3 and saw in Genesis 3 illustrations, basically, of what death looks like. So in this context, and this is going to be true in verse 23 as well, even though that verse is used as a salvation verse. Now, you can apply it that way, but in this context, I think Paul is referring to this comprehensive death. And if you remember, we talked about death being spiritual. We talked about death having impact on our minds. Adam and Eve died mentally. Their mind was twisted, was distorted. They were making thoughts that were inconsistent with reality. Death involves our morality, all the things that we do. It involves our emotions. Uh, bottom line, this comprehensive death has every touches every aspect of who we are. It even touches our relationship. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. So it affected relationships. That's death. That's death in terms of relationships. And Adam and Eve, the moment they partook of the fruit, they died in a physical sense as well. Adam lived another 930 years. His his heart kept ticking and he kept breathing, but he began to die in that his cells began to die the moment he partook. 
So in a physical sense, he experienced death. And it affected other things. Maddie, first, and then... then. Uh, so it just makes me think of Jesus when he says in John 10.10, 10, I have come, they might have life and have it full. Yep. And so obviously, in his statement, is the implication that we don't have life, so we don't have... Here and now. Life. Exactly. And again, you're about four slides ahead of me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I'm just uh, wondering about Jesus' slavery. Was he able to sin? Like when the devil tempted? Yes, yes and no. Well, yes and no. He could be under his father's Yeah. Don't you know that even now I can call legions of angels? Don't you know? Even now I can call them. Right. He chose not to. Yep. yep. But he didn't choose to sin. So yeah. He chose not to sin. But could he? Did he, he have a choice? He did have a choice. He had the volition. Maddie's got some There's bad. something you have to remember about Jesus, which is that he was like a second Adam. So God created Adam perfect with the ability to choose, but without a sin nature. Okay? Right. And Jesus is the second Adam. He has no integrated sin nature like Mm -hmm. the rest of us. And so again, he has that full ability to choose to do God's will or to do his own will. And so he chose, and that's in his humanity. That's his humanity. He chose to do yeah, but he could not sin because he had a divine name. In other words, he he was God. He's fully man, fully human, fully God. The really? scriptures say that he could not sin. Is there a person that says he? It speaks of because the test had to be real. Yes, just the way you know. I think of the yes. Chip. I bet you can't even just what. Yes, yes. That's like sin. He did not even take the first. Yes, that's that's why I answered the question yes and no. In his humanity, temptation was real. Yeah. And he exercised volition. In his deity, according to James, God cannot be tempted because God cannot sin. So in his deity, he could not sin. Okay, so yeah, his deity. So both are true. Right. Okay. Okay. So this comprehensive death is spiritual in that uh, there's no fellowship with God. It's mental in that uh, the unbeliever has no eternal perspective or no spiritual perception mentally. It's moral in that our works are like filthy rags, so there are no genuine good works. Emotional in that we don't have control over them. It's relational in that we don't have spiritual relationships because we are dead. So we have this comprehensive sense, and in the physical We have no access to restraining effects, okay? And then verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and, there's the verb form, enslaved to God. The verb form of doulos. You derive your benefit. Here's benefit, genuine benefit, resulting in growth, spiritual Christian growth or Sanctification, the theological word. And it's the same word that we saw in, what was it, 19. Resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. What's the context? 
of eternal life? Sanctification. So let's add it to our chart here. So eternal life is this comprehensive that counters the comprehensive death or what Jesus describes that, who was it, Connie, that said earlier, I came to give you life. In other words, eternal life in all of its aspects and life more abundantly. And I think the abundantly is here and now. So it's comprehensive or abundant life now and also ultimate eternal life in the future. In this context, the stress is on this here and now aspect. Okay? So we have the alternative, and this is what Maddie was talking about, that life abundant. So we have spiritual life, and we have now fellowship and power. We have fellowship with God and a resource of God to live differently. Enablement, power to be able to accomplish good things. We have an eternal perspective now, and we are in the process of renewing our mind. But that only comes with rebirth and the uh, enlightening work of the Holy Spirit. Now we can do righteous works. So we can do things morally that have eternal consequences. And now we have the fruit of the Spirit to deal with emotions. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the rest of them. Self-control being part of the list there. Relational, now we can have relationships with one another on a spiritual level. We can have fellowship with one another. This is abundant life. And when we are walking in the Spirit, these are the things that are potential. And the more consistently we walk in the Spirit, the more these things grow within us. And even physical, now we have access to possibly God healing and doing things even miraculously. The decay process continues. I haven't seen it stopped. But it's working towards an end where we will be resurrected. So there's the alternative. And then the last verse, you didn't think we'd get there, did you? <laughs> For the wages of sin is death. In other words, we earn death. It's like working for a slave master again. And at the end of the day, we get paid. And what do you get paid with? Death. And again, in this context, what's the context here? Comprehensive death. The here and now. Even though this is a salvation verse, or used as one, notice, I think the emphasis is not salvation here. He dealt with that in chapters 1 through 3, justification. He's dealing with sanctification. He's talking about a general principle in terms of life. So when he's talking about death, we can go back to that old way of thinking where we don't have a spiritual, eternal perspective. We can look at things like the rest of the world or the unbeliever looks at things. That's the flesh. He's going to develop that in chapter 7. We can go back to that. That's why it's a frustrating way of living. But the free gift, charisma there, relating to grace, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is he talking about... Eternal life in the future after the millennial kingdom in this context? In this context, I think he's talking about that same comprehensive life. Now, I think it's okay to apply this in terms of its end product of ultimate death and ultimate eternal life. But in this context, the stress is not that. The stress is, in fact, sanctification. That's why I have this, and I'll remind you here, eternal life, the comprehensive or abundant life, 
now and ultimate eternal life in the future. That's the context of verse 23. And now we can add a ninth principle to chapter 6. Sanctification produces Christ-likeness. That's the benefit. That's the process. Okay, number nine there. Produces Christ-likeness. Sanctification produces Christ-likeness. And we reached our goal today, miraculously maybe. (laughs) We can view every circumstance in our experience, and in fact, this is the perspective we ought to have, particularly in temptation, particularly in hardship and in difficulty. We can view every circumstance as our Lord sanctifying us, because that's where he's working in us right here and now. David? There's an idea that I remember it came to mind about presenting my body as a living sacrifice, and that the hardest part about that for me was I was always trying to crawl off the altar. Yep, yep, instead of presenting ourselves. Right. Who wants to close for us? For those of you that don't know Marcy, Marcy has been a part of our group. I don't know if you're still with us on the website, but God called her to a different ministry. Anyone? Mary. Hey, Father, we, we should just stand with our jaws dropping down. Consider what you've done in our lives and our entire life experience after accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior has entirely rigid flavor and color that there is no aspect of our life that is untouched by transforming this life. This day, Lord, I pray that you would be each one of us and this week go out as winter joys. May they be transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ's hardships. Uh, may we see them and your son, the fact that he decided to so we can praise him this week. Amen.